The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. All right, everybody. I was going to tell you to open to Galatians 5, but you already know that. And it was good to read that scripture together. Uh, it is an honor to be here. I live right down the road in Humeville, and uh, my sister went here, and she married Dominic Saya, who went here, and my wife's brother went here, and his wife, we have like all these people in our families. I never got to go here. I actually tried to go here after my, I wasn't going to tell this story, after my sophomore year over at Beaver College, which turned into Arcadia, and uh, I'm not bitter, but they offered me a financial aid package that was only $3,000 short of what I needed, and I literally said to uh, the person I was talking to, I know you have the money. <laughs> I got, you know when you get desperate? I literally, I can't believe I did this. She looked at me, I was like, if you just give me $3,000 more, I can come here. <laughs> and she was like, and, and I was like, I walked out so angry and literally had a moment with the Lord where I was like, surely you'd rather me go here than heathen Beaver College, God. And he was silent and did not answer me. And so uh, I finished my time <laughs> at Beaver College and, um, Really wanted to come here, but I don't know why he didn't let me. But everyone else I know came here, so, and I know a lot of you in the, in the uh, I was going to say crowd, but that sounds weird, here today in chapel. So God bless you all. It really is an honor to be here. Really thankful for a biblically faithful, solid academic institution. I know that we can send our young people uh, from church and our school to, my son uh, wants to play baseball and He's like, maybe I can play for Karen. I'm like, maybe you can. That'd be great, you know, in a few years. So, uh, yeah, it is a blessing to be here. So, yes, we're looking at this passage, uh, famous passage. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with it. And for good reason, um, it's famous because of the kind of things that it teaches about the Holy Spirit, especially verses 22 and 23 are famous. How many of you, your moms have this up on the wall in your house? Come on, the fruit of the Spirit. It's like got some needlepoint, a couple of you. You don't want to admit it. You're like, don't make me, right? Um, it's famous, right? Because of what these things tell us about the Christian life. Uh, so verse 22, what does the fruit of the Spirit mean? Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, not assuming that none of you ever thought about this before, but just for the sake of today's chapel, the fruit of the Spirit is what happens emotionally and practically in the life of anyone who has the Spirit of God. So when you trust in Christ, it changes things. Because now you don't only have the regular human nature you were born with. It's a really important idea for our day and age. But when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you don't only have your own desires and your, your natural personality. Now you also have God's uh, spirit dwelling in you. The fruit of the spirit is what happens in the life of someone who's in communication with God. It's what happens uh, when the Holy Spirit comes in and he begins to produce in his life in you, when he's active in your life, when God is actively working in your life, when he's living in your soul, these are the things that happen inside of you, right? I'm saying the same thing from all different angles here. And these are the things that shape your actions so that, so that these things come out of you as well. This is the fruit of living in step with God, like verse 16 says. 
Now, the fact that this is true is massively important. We need to know that these are the things that are produced in the heart of any man or woman who lives their life in close connection to God because they live by faith in Christ. That's really important. But this morning, I thought that we'd take a few minutes to back it up a step and explore something a little more fundamental that we can learn from this passage. What I want to zero in on is this question. Why are these things... Why are these particular things, the things that are produced in our life when God is active inside of us? And my short answer to that question is, the reason that these are the things that are produced in our lives when God is active in them is because these are the things that are true about God. They are who he is and what he is like. They describe his his qualities. Or you could say, God produces these things in our lives because he is just like this. And he rubs off on us, so to speak. The more we have him in our lives, the closer we are with God, and the more time we spend cultivating our relationship with him, the more like him we'll become. Now, if this is true, I think it brings up a really interesting question. At least I think it's interesting, right? So to illustrate the question, just imagine that you had a friend, uh, I'm, I'm sure this doesn't apply to any of you here, but imagine you had a friend who was not a good athlete at all, total klutz, right? Could not play sports. And then imagine one day you're hanging out with him and he's got, he's got a basketball under his arm and he's like, come on, one-on-one. He throws the ball at you. You're like, he's like, you and me, let's go. All right, whatever. You go down to the court and he beats you. He beats you back, crosses you over, drains a three to, to seal the game, right? And you're like, all right, man, where'd you learn that? And imagine he goes, oh, this new friend I was hanging out with. Yeah. What would you immediately conclude about that new friend? Probably that that new friend, that guy, is some great athlete to be able to take your klutz friend and turn him into some sort of athletic wizard. So again, look at the list of things in verses 19 through 21. I'm assuming you have some kind of scripture, right? But that was that bad list of bad things, right? All, all, the, all the rough things that we read. One of the things that's happening in that list is that it's pointing out what kind of people we all are before we're changed by God. I'm not saying, if you look at verse 19 through 21, that we all do all of those things. Probably only a few people do all of those things, right? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, that that list. Probably only a few people do all of those things. Maybe they're famous and we know their names. I'm not sure. What I'm saying is, We all have some of those things in our lives. We probably look down on the things in that list that we're not involved with, right? That's what we judge. And we excuse outside of the Spirit of Christ being influential in our lives. We Maybe naturally we tend to excuse and ignore the things in that list that we are involved in. But it's all just an indication of who we are without God. So the point of the passage that we're noticing this morning is just that the Holy Spirit can take people like that, like verses 19 through 21, And he can turn them into people who are described by verses 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit passage. And if he can do that, again, what does that tell us about God? What does it tell us about God that these are the things that happen in us and through us if the Holy Spirit is in our life? And what does each one of these fruits or this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, depending on how you want to look at it, what does each thing in this list individually tell us about God himself. 
The most basic way to answer that question is to say simply, again, that this must be what God is like. Just look at love, for instance, in verse 22, the first thing in the list. If closeness to God produces love in someone's life, what does that tell us about God? God must be very loving, loving at the most basic level, right? At the most basic level, you realize something like this for everything in these verses. Every one of the nine things listed tells us something about God. But I think it's actually even bigger and better than that. Uh, because it, it's, it's more than just what we learn about another human being uh, by meeting someone who spent time with them. Because the Bible's clear that one important difference between humans, us, and him, and God, is that unlike us, God is infinite. Theology 101, you know that, even before you take Theology 101. And that just doesn't tell us how big God is. The fact that God is infinite has to do with everything that he is. There's a great passage on this idea in Thomas Oden's book, Classic Christianity. I recommend it. Thomas Oden, Classic Christianity. Oden says this. The infinite is that which has no end, no limit, no finite boundary, and thus cannot be measured or timed by any finite standard. It is only when infinity is attributed to God that the concept has precise, plausible, and consistent meaning. All of God's good qualities are said to be without end or limit. So infinity applies to every divine attribute, for God is infinitely merciful, infinitely holy, infinitely just. There's a quote from Odin. So let's read this list now with that idea in mind. And I just want to think for a couple minutes about what each item in the list Paul writes tells us about God. So again, you have the first thing, love, in verse 22. If closeness to God produces love in someone's life, what does that tell us about God? Now, I think we can see clearly that this doesn't only tell us that God must be very loving. It tells us something more like, God is the most loving person there has ever been, full stop. In fact, the Bible says, as you know, I'm sure, He is love. Love is at the core of his being. It's an essential ingredient in his goodness. He is infinitely loving. There's no end to his affection and his goodwill and his willingness to sacrifice. He wants good things for everyone everywhere. He's self-giving and big-hearted, holding nothing back with no end. Right? He's never small-hearted small-minded, hateful. He is only generous all the time. And even became human so that he could do the ultimately loving thing and die for us. Or look at the second item in that list, joy. If closeness to God produces joy in someone's life, what does that tell us about God? If this is what rubs off on you when you're near God, when he's active in your life, if this, is, if this is what you feel like and what you are like when you're close to him, what must God be like? God must be a very happy person. Not to speak too, you know, offhandedly. Anyone here, don't raise your hand, but anyone here have a, a friend who's typically down? You don't have to raise your hand. You know, it's just like you hang out with them, they're down. You try them, but they kind of, don't look at anyone. I'm trying to, you're like, I don't know how much time I can, right? God isn't like that. God is joyful. And because of who he is, he must be infinitely joyful, infinitely happy. Think about that. 
infinite happiness. Even though he sees all the evil happening in the world at every moment, and even though all of it is actually directed at him, ultimately, he is infinitely emotionally resilient. He's not easily ruffled or offended at all. He's never grumpy, sullen, or bored, or irritable. He's never detached or disinterested. Though he knows more about the world than anyone else, he's eternally optimistic, excited about the future, and engaged in the present. Now, as I was working on this, I was realizing I'm going to be at an institution where theology is taught, and it's taught faithfully, and so I know there may be bells going off for some of you, because, of course, I might be seeming to leave uh, very little room in God for things like God's wrath against sin, and that would be a good concern if you had that going off in your mind. The Bible's very clear that God has wrath, even uses the word anger, against all that dishonors his glory and brings death to humanity. So we could do a Bible study about how someone filled with the Spirit will react to horrible sin. Like Jesus, on that day when he took his handmade whip into the temple. A lot of you know that story, right? But I want to suggest that if we take the whole Bible as our field of inquiry, and this passage in particular, and we ask the question, between wrath and joy, which of the two is more fundamental to God's being and existence. I think I'd have to say that in God, joy is more fundamental than anger. Eternal joy undergirds and gives value to God's wrath against sin and everything that ruins joy and fellowship. And that's why the fruit of the Spirit is spoken about here is joy and not wrath. Jesus, who showed wrath at times in his incarnation, that's true, was more fundamentally a joyful person than a wrathful person. And it has to be that way. Because holy wrath, or I should say it this way, the only holy wrath is a wrath that's preceded by joy in God and his holiness. You could never imagine a person who was fundamentally wrathful in his essence experiencing periodic punctuations of joy, right? Not a real biblical joy. And I would question whether wrath by itself could ever give rise to true joy at all. But I think we can all understand how someone who is fundamentally joyful in God at the center of their being could be wrathful against anything that opposes God. And I think that that is why the Holy Spirit had no problem inspiring Paul to write that the fruit of the Spirit is joy and letting us think of the implications for God's character. And at the same time, the Spirit, evidently, was fine to leave wrath out of his description of the fruit of the Spirit. And so here's one more quote from Thomas Oden. Odin says, God finds, this is so great, God finds eternal joy in being. There can be no desire to cease to be in one who is insurmountably blessed and wise. God could never wish to end God's own life. That would be unthinkable, since it would be inconsistent with God's blessed enjoyment of life. God exists in the, this is, sorry, Odin's the man. God exists in the fullest imaginable sense. Simply being is a source of infinite joyment, enjoyment to one who is incomparably, or to one who incomparably is. God could never yearn to be less than God in full plenitude. God could never despair over being God in the fullest sense conceivable. The joy that comes from being is eternal joy. Thus it is said that God is infinitely happy simply and eternally to be. 
So of course, one thing this means is that, when, is that when God loves us, he doesn't love us so that he can fill up some need in himself for our friendship. He doesn't need anything. He can love us out of the infinitely deep well of his own happiness. That's the joy of God. And it's important to know, I think, for all of us, that the emotional life of God is more fundamental to the reality of the universe than any anger or bitterness or anxiety of any human or of all humanity put together. No, the the deep, peaceful happiness of God is at the center of all things, not our hang-ups and our issues. So you just ask yourself, what will it produce in my life if I get really close to someone who is infinitely happy in himself? And I think that's probably a really pressing question for our generation. Because we can't seem to find happiness, can we? Outside of Christ. Where you look at the next verse, and the next word in the list, in verse 22. Peace. If closeness to God produces peace in someone's life, what does that tell us about God? God is the kind of person who can take someone who is all torn up inside, or anxious, or angry, or hurt, and produce peace. Doesn't that sound great? And the reason that God does that is that he is, you know where this is going already, in himself, the most peaceful being in the universe. Nothing worries him. Nothing stresses him out. He has an infinite capacity to handle all the stressful issues of life for everyone in the whole world without descending into anxiety. Isn't that good news? Imagine if you went and told God your trouble and you realized he was getting stressed. You'd be like, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. Because there's like seven-something billion of us. But God is never overwhelmed or confused. He's never anxious. He's never startled or apprehensive or annoyed. That's the best news for me ever. (laughs) He's never aggravated. Think about that. The creator of the universe can't be thrown off. An author named A.B. Simpson wrote that when someone has true closeness to God, it brings, this is a great quote too, it brings into the spirit the abiding presence of the very God of peace himself. True peace is nothing less than the deep divine tranquility of his own eternal calm. Take the next verse, uh, the next, uh, sorry, word in verse 22, long-suffering. Long-suffering means patience. It also has the idea of endurance. A history of closeness to God in a life, the filling of the Spirit, produces the ability to endure difficult things without giving up. It produces the ability to stick with difficult people without abandoning them. So if this is true, if hanging out with God makes me better able to press on through difficult things, what does that tell me about God? It tells me that God is infinitely patient. He has an infinite ability to put up with me and every other difficult person in the world for all time. He has an unending capacity for putting up with the messes we've made. Now, of course, he won't put up with our messes forever, but it's not because he just couldn't handle it anymore. Whenever God finally unleashes judgment on the world and puts an end to all of our mess, it's not because he just finally lost control, right? Like he was finally settling down to watch that movie, and then one of our wars got on his nerves, and he's like, that's it, I've had it, right? Tribulation, no. That's not God, right? It's not because he lost control. When he finally brings down judgment, 
on the unbelieving world, it's because his love and his wisdom dictated that it was time to cut the situation short. But it wasn't because he couldn't put up with us. He could put up with us forever because he has infinite patience. The next word in verse 22 is kindness. If closeness to God makes someone more kind, what does that tell us about God? Kind isn't really a cool word. We don't really use the word kind, right? We, we don't really, we, we say nice, right? But nice can just mean like they don't make anyone mad, you know. Here, you know, here, you know, ladies talking like, ah, oh, she's dating a new guy. What's he like? Oh, he's nice, right? You're like, ah, I feel bad for her, right? You know what that means. I always thought she was a little better than dating, you know, right? Kind is a lot bigger of a word than that. It doesn't mean nice. Kind means there's an active goodwill that goes out from the person and does good things in people's lives around them. We actually do know what this is like. When you run into someone like that, you're like, I like that guy. I need more people like that in my life, right? Closeness to God will make you like that because God is infinitely kind. He's always considerate. He always knows what's best and wants what's best for everyone. Theologians say he always wills the good of everyone. Everyone. Jesus himself said of his father, he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. He's never mean or vindictive or tight-fisted. He wants everyone to be happy, healthy, and whole forever. Now, I'm not saying that if God is in your life, you will always feel happy and healthy and whole right now. Especially if you're sick or you're going through a trial. Most people don't feel happy when those things are going on. I'm just saying that God doesn't like those situations. He's not happy when you're suffering. He's not indifferent to anyone's suffering. And he's working to make a world where no one will ever be sick or go through trials ever again. Isn't that the the gospel? His desire, because he's kind, is for all that to be gone. God isn't happy with pain. God has infinite kindness for his whole creation. He wants the planet clean and healthy and all the animals doing good and men and women everywhere enjoying it and living full lives forever. He wants you to be able to overcome trials and to know that you're loved and that he wants you to be close to him so you can be full of life. The kindness of God, the infinite kindness of God. You look at the next word in the list, goodness. This word means A positive, this is such a dry definition, I forget where I found it. A positive moral quality characterized by interest in the welfare of others. But you get the idea. If closeness to God makes someone good, what does that tell us about God? God must be infinitely good. He's never evil. He doesn't have a dark side or skeletons in his closet. You know, you're not going to find him smoking pot behind Wawa one day. God? Oh, hey man. What's up? You're like, what are you doing, right? Or worse things. In our culture, I think we've lost the ability to even create characters like that or even imagine people like that. I don't know, maybe Captain America is like close, but people just kind of laugh at him, right? But God is like that. He doesn't have a quick temper or a pet vice or a secret bad habit that he nurses. Again, you'll never catch him being someone other than he's always shown himself to be. He doesn't love things that are mean or things that break people down or ruin things. He only builds, grows, heals, cleans, and loves. And when he's around, things are good. Things work. 
Things live and grow. People get fixed. Neighborhoods get fixed. Churches get fixed. When he shows up in bodily form again, the whole world's going to get fixed, right? He'll never do you wrong. Only good things come from knowing him. In fact, he's so good, his presence, again, will heal the whole world. He's infinitely good. He's going to heal the whole universe. Look at the next word. Faithfulness. If closeness to God makes someone more faithful, more consistent, and better to depend on, what does that tell us about God? God is infinitely faithful. He never lets anyone down, and he never has. He doesn't have limits. He doesn't get tired and give up. He doesn't get discouraged. You can depend on him forever for anything. You can bank everything on him, and he'll always come through. He never lies, never drops the ball, never changes course on a whim. He's the same today that he was yesterday. Book of Hebrews. He'll be the same tomorrow. And the next word is gentleness, verse 23. Closeness to God will make you more gentle. It's interesting that it's there, right? Why? Because God is infinitely gentle. Think about that. What does that even mean? Infinite gentleness. I, you know, I put it in my notes, but then I was like, that's such an odd concept. Here's a definition of the word, at least, for gentleness in, in the New Testament. It's the flavor someone gives off when they're not overly impressed by a sense of their own importance. That's good. That's good. Humility courtesy and meekness, this author said. So God, who is the most infinitely important being in the universe, the most infinitely strong being in the universe, is infinitely gentle. He's completely able to control his own strength in order to make it do good things. He knows how to handle delicate situations and fragile people. Even with all of his power and all of his importance, he doesn't have a craving to impress people. Think of Jesus saying, I am meek. That's the same word in the New Testament. And lowly at heart. Jesus is a human picture of God's infinite gentleness. And how crazy is it that when he was walking in human flesh, he could walk into a room and people wouldn't notice him? God. Or you look at the next word, self-control. Last word in the list. Closeness to God will make you a more self-controlled person. God is infinitely self-controlled. He's always completely in command of his emotions and his actions. He never lashes out in anger. He never reacts in hurt or selfishness. He never acts in haste. Whatever he, whenever he does something, it is infinitely thought through and completely in keeping with his love and his wisdom. That's the list. I don't know about you, but thinking about God this way makes me want to worship him. One of my favorite things about studying scripture and getting to teach it is, I don't know how many times I've been in the middle of you know, preparing and you gotta just stop. I, I, there's a story about New Testament scholar Gordon Fee writing on 1 Corinthians 13 and he says, I literally had to step away from my computer and weep for an hour when I realized that I was writing about the love of God. And you study these things. You study the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of us have been let down by a lot of people. And for many of us, the people closest to us have failed to be what they should have been. But here's the good news. There is a being who's closer to you than your father. That's really important because he made your soul. He's more powerful than the president. He's wiser than your teachers and your coaches. And he sticks closer than a brother 
because he's God. And that means he's infinitely loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. Want some good news? You need some good news. Ready? Good news. That's God. That is the truth. It really is who he is. That's who made you. And that's who invite you, invites you in verse 16 to walk with him. That's who tells you that sin and death only separate you from his goodness. And during his life, Jesus himself showed us these things in a human life. He displayed God more perfectly than we could have imagined. Just think of the way the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23 is displayed in the life of Christ, if you know the stories. And think of the cross. Think about what it meant that Jesus hung there to die in our place and take the penalty for our sin and face death for us. And think about how it's right there that God most clearly displayed these qualities. His patience and his goodness and his faithfulness and his gentleness toward us. The infinite self-control of Jesus in enduring the wrath for our sin and the way it reveals the self-control of God himself. How much self-control is on display in the Father and the Son and the Spirit as Christ is crucified. The love of God put on display for us as Jesus died there. The peace of God that it declared for all who believe and even, like it says again in the book of Hebrews, the joy of God, which we saw in Jesus' willingness to endure the cross for us. Who but an infinite being could have ever done this? And who but someone who had infinite love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control would have ever done anything like this? And so the more we look at him, the more we want to know him, and the more we worship him. And the more we live this life, the more we're remade into his image. I'm going to pick up my guitar and sing a couple songs with you. And uh, I think the best thing we can do after we encounter the word of God is praise him. I mean, studying the word of God should lead to just joy in who he is and worship that he loves us and reveals himself to us and honor and glory for everything that God is for us.